This morning I'll be reading Ezra 3, verses 8 to 13. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of uh, Jezadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Nathan Dix. I am the RUF minister at Boston University. Um, we're going to be talking about work this morning, so I just want to, uh, by way of introduction of myself and this uh, passage in our sermon, just tell you a little bit about what I do. I consider myself a missionary to the college campus, uh, so I, I don't go abroad, I don't go overseas, I go across the river. Um, but I'm also a pastor that happens to go to this church. Uh, my wife and I have been going here for many years. I met Sarah here at Christ the King. Um, so that's what I do. Um, and why am I up here today? Well, we have a pastor, but he's not here yet. We're, we're you know, waiting for him to come May 2nd, uh, as you've heard. So you're going to see a few different faces if you're a visiting uh, person here. Uh, you're going to see a few different faces and just know the real guy's coming, um, and he's going to be here soon. Um, in the meantime, you have me. Um, so, by the way, if you've just joined us uh, because of the, uh, the time change, God's grace abounds. No shame. No shame. I, I know it's difficult, especially for people with young kids uh, getting here this morning. So welcome, especially if you're new. Let me pray for us before we get into our, our passage. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to bless this time of exploring your word, a somewhat obscure portion of a book that maybe a lot of us have not read in a while. Um, but Lord, your gospel is in it. Already we see a taste of Jesus. And Lord, give us a taste now, give us a longing now by your spirit for him to come we pray that your spirit would be among us, softening our hearts with me as I speak. Lord, be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason we're talking about work is because 
our series at Boston University with my students, uh, I'm teaching on work and how we think about how the gospel transforms the way we think about our vocation. So it's on my mind, bear with me, as we just kind of jump right in to thinking about work as restoration. Work as restoration. Let me begin with a story. Uh, you've likely had something that's been dear to you, that's been broken. Uh, I was given a gift of a Martin solid top mahogany acoustic guitar for my high school graduation. And I took this thing overseas with me when I was a, a missionary. I took it to Boston with me. And in Boston, um, the winters are tough on a guitar if you leave it out. And I learned this because slowly the neck started separating from the body. And after a while, I realized this thing was going to be unplayable. Uh, so I took it over to Berkeley. There's a, a repair shop, got it repaired. It was as good as new. Um, it was amazing to see what this repair man had done. He restored it. And, and I, I found out recently, I looked online to see what the value of this guitar was. And it's actually appreciated. Uh, I think I got it when 2003. Now it's worth like four times as much as it was. It, by the way, the name of this guitar is Whole Wheat uh, because of its dark color. It's also uh, to differentiate it between all the other white uh, bread guitars out there. No offense, anyone who has a white bread guitar. Mine was Whole Wheat. But I, I love it even more. It's mine, right? I couldn't just get a new one. It wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be mine. Something about restoring what was broken meant even more. It had greater value to me because it was the same one that my parents had given me for my high school graduation. So when we think of work as restoration, we're telling a story and we're implying two things. First, that there is an original order or an original beauty and secondly, that there's a brokenness or fallenness from that order or beauty. When we get lost in our work, uh, maybe some of you right now in your vocation, uh, in what you do for your, your daily uh, labor, you're lost. You don't really know why you're in the thick of the, the, the office politics. You don't know why um, you're dealing with menial tasks. What does this have to do with anything larger, anything meaningful or purposeful in life? We've lost the story. We've lost the plot. Well, as Christians, we believe that the Bible tells us the true story of the whole world. And this story begins in Genesis 1. The first few pages of the Bible gives us a picture of how it all began. God created the heavens and the earth, and you see that he made it good. But we also see that it was not all that it was meant to be. There was a perfection and a glory that even in Eden, creation had not yet attained. And we know this for several reasons, one of them being the, the tree of life. There was a life that was to come. There was a glory that was to come that Adam and Eve had not yet received. So you only get a few pages into the book and you see that this destiny was interrupted. Adam and Eve had received the command to 
uh, not eat of a certain tree in the garden, and they disobeyed. They decided to rewrite the story with themselves at the center. And so, ever since, things have been off. There's something broken, something that's not like it should be. So this morning, I want us to look at three things. The opportunity of restoration, particularly when it comes to our work or our vocation. Secondly, the limits of restoration. And finally, the ultimate hope of complete restoration. So we're looking at the opportunity, the limits, and the hope. The opportunity. The passage we just read in Ezra 3, and I I invite you to hold your thumb in that part of Scripture. I think in the bulletin it gives you the page number if you're using the Pew Bible or looking it up on your phone. Just keep that open. Um, This is a small microcosm of a story that... um, of restoration that God is doing in the entire creation. Um, And we we talk about the opportunity of restoration as starting and ending with God. We often think if we broke it, therefore we can fix it. We we, we treat our our lives and often our work as this world is broken. Maybe you acknowledge that we, we broke it. And we think that we can fix it. Well, friends, the opportunity for restoration begins and ends with God. Apart from him, there is no possibility nor opportunity to restoring what was once lost. Only the creator can recreate. Only the creator can restore. So what in the world does this have to do with Ezra 3? I'll give you a little bit of background to lead you up to Ezra 3, the, Jew, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were a people set apart by God, apart from all other nations in the world. To them belonged the covenant promise. This developed over generations that by God's grace, they would be a great nation, numerous, and a blessing to other nations. And as it unfolded through Scripture, you see that they would have the blessing of God, but they would also have the presence of God. In the wilderness, it was the tabernacle. When they finally made it to the the promised land, it was Jerusalem. It was the temple where in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Spirit of the Lord dwelt. God was with them. And therefore, it meant that God was going to protect them and bless them forever. Now, it seemed that these dreams were shattered when after a period of disobedience, once again, to God... King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem. And if you're a king in that day and you destroy a a country, a a, a city, you go to the most important place, which in this case would have been the temple, and you go and you take what is precious to them. So they took everything in the temple and took it into Babylon. They didn't just take the things, they took people with them. Thousands of Jews were brought into exile in Babylon. They were working for the benefit of a people who worshipped gods that were idols. And they rejected the God of Israel. So for about 70 years, a whole generation, decades of being in exile, 
the Jews were able to return to Jerusalem because there was a new king in town, the king of Persia, King Cyrus. This is about um, the year 539 B.C. And so because they are free now to go back to their hometown, in this decree, they were also given the ability to rebuild the temple, that which was precious to them. And so Ezra is really all about a people returning to their land, restoring a temple, and returning to the law of God. Let's look at verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation, the house of the Lord was laid. Um, building a foundation is an important part of any construction project. Um, often these, uh, there are often ceremonies attached to this, right? The, the golden shovel breaking ground or on a cornerstone of a building. If you look at the old buildings around Boston, there's often a plaque or engraved the year that this foundation was laid. This was a big deal. It was symbolic of the entire temple coming together in its fullness, right? So they stop and they praise the Lord. It's important that it mentions King David. Now, David was the, the first king of Israel to say, we need to build a house for the Lord. But because of his sin, he was not able to do that, even though he longed for it, but his son was, Solomon. So there was a first temple, and now they're building a second temple. And they're elated not just because, hey, this is our place. This, you know, this means that we're back home. It was the blessing has come once again on our people. They were thinking, hey, this story is not over. God has remembered us. The blessing on Israel has come again. I want to stop here. There's more to this story, but I want to stop here and recognize a few things God brought about this restoration. Um, yes, and so did the people who built the temple. Um, I, I want to make note of this because there are so many, if you read Ezra as a whole, there are so many vocations named. We've already heard about kings and political leaders, scribes, priests, and Levites, singers and musicians, and if you read on, there are gatekeepers, those who served at the temple. There are, of course, masons and carpenters. And those are uh, those who, um, and there are also those who could just contributed money. You know, they had another vocation that didn't directly involve the restoration of the temple, but they gave money. Uh, th this is completely unplanned, by the way. Our, our church is gonna be restored soon. Uh, this building is very old and needs some restoration. That was completely unplanned here. But this is a good thing, right? To see this old, beautiful building. And I think already the work had begun in the interior, and now they're going to do the exterior. If you're able to help, serve. Serve and, and give money towards this project. But this is, a, this is a micro story in Ezra of restoration, and it's one of many. All throughout Scripture, you see God restoring his people restoring his promise. 
What does this have to do with us? Well, God is the author of this story. And even when we see that everything is broken down, everything is rubble, all of our dreams and the promises of God seem to be crashed and destroyed, that the story is not over, that there is hope. We must always hope in God, who is the king of all creation over all kings. And when it comes to our work and our vocations, we should have motivation to continue on. We'll talk about later how as Christians we are members of the household of God, that we are about the work of restoration in our careers. But for now, I want to just take a moment to, to speak of this, that we um, now think of, uh, we're not just thinking of the nation of Israel being restored. We're not just thinking of one temple. We're thinking of God's whole creation being restored. And the way in the New Testament they talk about this, when Jesus came, he proclaimed, uh, proclaimed the, the, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. This means that all of creation is going to be uh, restored. And when uh, theologians have spoken of the work of the kingdom here today as New Testament Christians, they speak in terms of spheres. I want to quote a theologian, uh, in especially the Dutch Calvinist tradition, they speak of this a lot. There's a sphere of science, a sphere of art, a sphere of the family and of the state, a sphere of commerce and industry. Whenever one of these spheres comes under the controlling influence of the principle of the divine supremacy and glory, and this outwardly reveals itself, there we can truly say that the kingdom of God has become manifest. So under God's supreme rule and sovereign reign, we work as subjects in the work of his kingdom. Let me give you an example of this. This might seem abstract and vague for you. I know a man who, uh, he graduated from BU many years ago and, and with a pre-law degree. He went to a really great law school. And when it came time for him to graduate and choose which uh, law firm to go to, he decided to say no to all of them and open up a private practice. And what this private practice was for and what it was targeted for was, um, was to work on the behalf of immigrants in the country. And he works in Atlanta, Georgia uh, with immigrants. And there's a, a large immigrant community in the greater metro area of Atlanta. But what, what was going on here? This man is a Christian who believed that all people are made in the image of God. And often, when people come to this country, they lose the dignity that they once had in their home country. They maybe don't have the same resources, they don't have the same language ability, and often immigration law is just against them. And so this lawyer is working on their behalf and he is doing the work of restoration. He's saying, you too have dignity, let me help restore the image of God. He's seeing something broken in the justice system. He's seeing uh, injustice done, and he's saying, let me restore justice in my career and what I do. And he's doing this out of an understanding of that this is the work of the kingdom. God restoring the original order and beauty of creation. 
Now, there's so many other vocations and careers we could talk about this work in, uh, the work of a doctor, healing, restoring, right? Restoring and healing the order and the beauty of the human body. But why don't we have more of this? Why don't we have more of this? Well, there are limits to restoration. Let's return to Ezra 3. Starting in verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites, the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So they couldn't distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the people's weeping. What is going on here? Well, notice that it says that the old men who had seen the first house or the first temple, these were the ones that had wept. Remember, an entire generation, almost uh, about 70 years went by. These men were very old, and they remembered what had happened. But they also knew something about this temple that was going to remain different than the first for years and years to come, that this temple would not receive the blessing of God in the same way that the first had. That the presence of the Lord would not make its way to the Holy of Holies in the same way. That this temple was different. And so they wept. Something was missing. In the same way, our work to restore the glory and the beauty of creation as God intended it. It's limited and it's partial and it may cause you great sadness. We're working so hard and yet it's not the way it's meant to be still. I studied abroad in Italy as a student and uh, Italy is known for its opera. I had never darkened the door of an opera house in my life, but uh, most of the fellow students I uh, was with had the same experience that we all wanted to go to, to an Italian opera. And so we did, we saw La Boheme and it was amazing. We felt like royalty, we were wearing clothes that uh, we felt stuffy in, but it, it fit, right? Um, but this was an amazing experience for us and we had never been to an opera, so we didn't know the difference. It was great, it was great. But in the middle of the opera, as a, as a soprano uh, soloist was out there, uh, we started to hear this, this, this noise erupt. I think it was around like this section of the audience. We heard this noise erupt, and we, and we thought at first, oh, this must be clapping, you know? Like people just, oh, this soprano is amazing. No, it was heckling. It was heckling. Uh, the, the, the audience... Uh, heard a, a flat note or something that was off or maybe this soloist performance was not the way it should be and they were heckling loudly. It was like we were at, at, at Fenway. Um, it, it, was, it was different. What was going on there? Where, well, Italians love opera. They love opera. And these uh, ones who were heckling, they knew the original. Maybe they had the score memorized. They knew the beauty of the original, and they immediately knew when it was off. And I think art often has a way of doing this. It has this beauty, and often it's, it's so close to perfect. But it also can elicit a lot of sadness because it's just a taste. It's not quite there yet of the glory and the beauty that we were meant for. Right? Um, 
There's something that we long for when we hear a beautiful piece of music, when we see a beautiful painting. It makes us long for something more. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. And there's a limit to our restoration of work in all forms of work. A doctor performs a surgery where only a portion of the tumor can be removed. Um, there are limits. There, um, if you are a parent, you may, uh, once the kids go to bed, you put away everything. Every, you know, you, you've, you've used the Swiffer. Everything is in its place and tidy, and finally you can sleep. And then the next morning, chaos, right? Why do you keep cleaning up? Why do you keep trying? Why do you keep going? There, there's a, um, a, a white brick wall right across the street from us. It's a, it's a warehouse, and it's just asking for graffiti. And right now, there's this huge red graffiti tag that someone came and spray-painted, and it always happens. And someone always comes and paints it over in white. Why do they keep doing that? Why don't they just let it go? Why do we keep getting up day in and day out and going about work that we might know is going to get undone? We ought to hear this as keeping us from any sort of arrogant triumphalism in our work. Right? We should know that this side of heaven, there will always be a limit but it should also lead us toward hope. What is the ultimate hope in our work? Well, it's Jesus. Haggai 2 um, is kind of parallel to Ezra 3. Uh, God speaks through the prophet Haggai to the people who were building the temple. You can turn there. I'm going to read from Haggai 2, 2 through 9. God speaks through Haggai. Speak now to Zerubbabel, that name sound familiar, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the, Lord, the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. I remember he's talking just to the, the people who are building, rebuilding this temple. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Remember that part of the reason they were weeping, part of the reason this was not the same temple is that the spirit of the Lord was not in the Holy of Holies. But here is God saying, my spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. The latter glory will be greater than the former. He's not talking about that this temple 
is just going to be that much better than the first. No, he's talking about something far greater, far bigger. That the glory of the Lord would fill the entire earth. When you look at Genesis 1 and you, and you read it as the building of a temple, that Eden is a, is a temple garden city. And then you read Revelation and you see that, that God is going to bring this garden city, this temple of the Lord. You start to get what God is talking about. The entire earth will be his temple. And this temple will never be destroyed. It will never be shaken for its foundation. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. <laughs> Bear with me. So, so, so how does this glory come about? Well, this glory comes about through the church, and we get this from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, flip there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What good news to a people who knew exile, who knew what it meant to be a foreigner in a strange land. And what good news to people who know what it means to be refugees, even today, in our world. God is saying this, you are no longer strangers, you are no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I just said that the entire creation will be the temple of the Lord, that the entire creation will be filled with his glory. How does that work now? The Spirit of the Lord, by faith in Christ, is in you, dwells in you. You are the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as temples of the Holy Spirit, we go about our work day in and day out, to bring about the restoration of glory. In Ezra, we saw that there was shouting for joy at this good news. And this is good news and reason to shout, even for Presbyterians, reason to shout. Praise the Lord. Jesus, our cornerstone, who came and died and shed his blood so that our hearts, just like that white wall with red graffiti can be made whiter than snow. All of our sin washed away, everything back in order, the beauty that we were meant to experience and receive and glory in. Do we shout without weeping or do we shout with weeping? Uh, this was uncoordinated as well. The Holy Spirit uh, gave the song to Amanda Psalm 126 that we just sang. Although we are weeping, Lord, help us keep sowing the seeds of your kingdom for the day you will reap them. Your sheaves we will carry. Lord, please do not tarry. All those who sow weeping will go out with songs of joy. We shout for joy and we weep. The mixture sometimes we don't know 
the difference, but there is joy coming, a joy that will not end, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do rejoice at this wondrous work of restoration that you're doing in this world. Lord, we pray that in our daily lives and our vocations that often feel mundane, and disconnected from this larger story, we pray that you would give us a renewed sense that you are restoring our hearts in this world in us and through us by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.